0: Well, I've reached an age where I've crossed an interesting milestone, and I'm wondering if anybody can relate. I'll take a shot at this, and I'll just wonder, is there anybody out there who has experienced what I hope I can describe? Um, I came across it as I'm, I'm reading uh, parenting books, let's say, and I used to love to read books about parenting, and you know, no matter what advice they could give, there was always time in my parenting... To correct whatever mistakes they were suggesting that I was doing dreadfully wrong, there was always time to correct that, you know? So they would say things like, now, when it comes to the issue of authority, the submission issue, that's got to be settled by age four. The personality is set in by about age five, you know, and all these things. And it used to be like, okay, no problem, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. I don't like those books anymore. Those are dreadful books. Because as you read them or as you listen to that parenting speaker, or as you listen to that podcast, they will say something. When you have children who are 8, about to be 9, 10, about to be 11, and uh, you got you got kids, 13, and you get to that age and you'll hear them say with all earnestness, if this isn't settled, if this parenting thing, you haven't done this, by the time they're four, it's going to be very difficult. All hope is lost. And you're going, Mm -hmm. uh oh now for some of you the same thing could be applied when you read books about uh, or you read articles about personal finance is there anything more dreadful than being 65 and hearing what you have to have done by 50 well now what Let me tell you, I don't like those books. I dread those books. I see those books. They are not encouraging. And here's the funny thing they're meant to be encouraging, they're meant to be instructive. They're not encouraging at all. They're one big finger wagging, pointing at me. They're books of judgment, and I resist them. And I submit to you this morning that is how a lot of people feel about God's Word, the Bible. They feel they don't measure up, they're not worthy. They feel like this book is a bunch of rules that would have been helpful for me to know years ago. It would have been helpful before that great trouble, before that great crime, before that great sin, before all those decisions. Isn't it something? How often have we seen it where folks will bring their children back under God's word as if to say it's not too late for them, but me, I don't know. And this book for them becomes not a book of joy, but a book of dread because they see it as a bunch of rules and primarily rules they haven't fulfilled. So week after week, what we try to do when we gather around God's word is to say, that. Of course this is going to be a guide on how to live, but that's not primarily what it is. It's not. Even the Bible's own testimony about itself says that's not primarily what it is. This is not a book of rules about how you're supposed to live. It's actually a book about Jesus. It's a book about what he has done for you. So after the resurrection of Jesus and before he ascended, he actually says this. In the last couple chapters of Luke, he's walking with some disciples to Emmaus, and they're so confused. And he said, Jesus sat down with them, and starting in the Moses and the prophets, in other words, starting at the Torah, starting in Genesis 1-1 and walking through the Scriptures, he showed them how they were all about the Messiah. This whole book is one big, it's not a finger pointing at you in judgment. If anything, it's a finger pointing at Jesus. Look at him. Look at what he's done. So for anybody who feels under the weight of the law or feels like, I I haven't measured up, I haven't done these things... in every sermon, there's going to be something, surely, where there's a thou ought, you know, thou shalt. Of course, God's word provides guidelines for living, and you're going to see that in today's text, but it's so much more than that. And if it's just a guideline for living, you're always going to feel discouraged, and this book is not going to be a book of joy for you. It's going to be a book of dread. But if you can see how it's not just how we ought to live, but how it points to Jesus. Well, every sermon's supposed to do that, but this text today illustrates it probably that principle better than most. So meet me in Second Samuel 23. Some of you are curious if there are, in fact, any chapters left in Second Samuel, and there are. There's 23, and there's next week. Next week, y'all, is the finish line of this Samuel series that was started in <clears throat> May. And if... If you, I mean, don't miss it, right? We're here. 2 Samuel 23. Turn in your Bibles or turn on your phones or your devices to get to 2 Samuel 23. And in 2 Samuel 23, we have a list. We're going to start, we're going to begin our attention down around verse 13, but let me set up what you have here. We've, we've got this list, and it's a list, it's really a list of, uh, of soldiers. Valiant soldiers. You may not think there'd be much we could take from a devotion, devotional aspect out of a list, but, uh, you know, uh, we realize. You know, it, it's interesting. Veterans Day weekend, we honor veterans. Here we are 3,000 years removed from 2 Samuel 23, but in a way they're doing the same thing. They're saying, here are those. It, most cultures agree. Those who risk their lives in defense of a group of people are worthy of special respect and honor. It's true. And it's no different here in 2 Samuel 23. They're going through this list. And uh, uh, think about so much of what David has been through. It's been these, so much of the story of David is really about fighting, it's about soldiering, it's about military victories. And so chapter 23, you get a list of some of the military elite. Now, they name the three come first, the three named. And each one gets not only their name, but a little bio. Uh, It's an interesting stuff you can read about that. Then you get the anonymous three, and that'll be the focus of our text today. Then you get two leaders and an extended list of about 30. And you may have heard of them. Together, these 30 listed at the end of the chapter, uh, they're called the mighty men of David. You heard of the dirty dozen? This is the mighty 30. Uh, and uh, of course it doesn't, if you count them all up, for those of you, and there are always a few, there are those of you that will go back and count up and you'll say, now wait, it's not exactly 30. Well, it's because they're soldiers. So some would die and it'd be next man up. And so in that list, roughly 30. David's mighty 30. They became, David's military elite, they really became a band of brothers, a team, a family. Battle had a way of hardening them and uh, uh, helping them come together in a deep and abiding love uh, for each other. And we're going to focus on just four verses. And starting in verse 13, this particular scene of the anonymous three. Now, as they're going through the list, they're telling about military exploits. So that means it flashes us back to the time when David was early in his career as king. Of course, his... uh, His capital, he was going to set up. There was Jerusalem. His hometown was Bethlehem. He was going to set up. And uh, the Philistines, the Israelites' arch rivals, thought this would be the perfect time to nip this new kingdom in the bud. David had not yet been fully established. There were still a lot of battles to fight, but he'd been installed as king. And they thought, well, the Philistines thought, well, Saul... David, doesn't matter to us. They're all enemies, and so let's, let's get them, but let's get them while they're weak. And they had made, well, verses 13 and 14 give us a lot of good detail about the inroads the Philistines had made. Verse 13, and three of the 30 chief men went down and came about harvest time to David at the cave of Adullam, when a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold, right? He's in a cave. And the garrison of the Philistines was then... At Bethlehem. Now, this actually tells us quite a bit. We know when it says Philistines were encamped in the Valley of Rephaim, that's just a few miles southwest of Jerusalem. So, if they can get a stronghold there, it's next stop Jerusalem. They had taken over Bethlehem itself. Think about it. That, that means they had made it deep into the heart of Judah, deep into the heart of uh, where, where where David was supposed to rule over. David's hometown. So they're in the heart of Israel. They're just a few miles from Jerusalem. And so, of course, David, as a result, had to flee. And he sets up his stronghold in this cave in Adullam. This shows how weak Israel was. If your king and his band of soldiers has to hole up in a cave, things are not looking good. Basically, they'd run David out into the wilderness again. And one last little detail don't miss. It was harvest time. Think about it. They're on the verge of disaster because of the Philistines. What are they doing? Why Why are they perched right there in Bethlehem? They know at harvest time, if they come in and plunder the harvest, can you imagine you've labored, you've spent all you can, and everything, everything, your survival as a group depends on a successful harvest. So now can you imagine the enemy comes in and says, thank you very much, we'll take that. It not only would be a great bloody battle, but there would now be starvation in the land being out your annual food supply. So David, out of his capital, in the wilderness, his king, starting to probably wonder if those promises in 2 Samuel 7 were ever going to come true. And if you understand that, you'll understand why he sighs in verse 15. And David said longingly, probably to himself, right? This is just his heart's cry. Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. Now, it's important to understand, and I hope this is obvious to you, David wasn't literally dehydrated. Okay? He, he wasn't dying of thirst. You can't have a stronghold of 400 men if you don't have a source of water. So obviously, there's a spring at a or else they'd all be dead. He's got water. No, what's he longing for? He's longing for something much deeper than physical thirst. You might say he's thirsting for the promises of God. He's looking around going, this, th- this is it? God promised to build for me a household, a kingdom? He's starting to lose heart. He's starting to think, is it ever going to happen? Am I ever going to? Here I am, back in a cave, installed as king, and I'm back in a cave, once again on the run for my life. Am I ever going to make it? And his hometown, man, it's Bethlehem, his home. Surely you can relate to that. It's not just that he wants a drink of water from the well at Bethlehem, and not just any well, but the, you know, the one by the gate. Maybe that was the one he drank from as a boy. But that sense of home, home means you're safe. Home means you're secure. Home means for once he can put up his feet and relax. He can't have it. So what he's saying in effect is, I'd long to be in the heart of the promised land, surrounded in my kingdom by safety, drinking from my favorite well. We all get that, don't we? I think we get it on a physical level as well as a spiritual level. I mean, on a physical level, isn't it true? The water from your hometown tastes the best. I can take you. I can take you to the spot in Murray, Kentucky at Southwest Elementary School. Every kid at Southwest Elementary School, we knew the best water fountain. It was one across from the library. You know, the new wing they built? Yeah. Man, I don't know what kind of refrigeration they put in that thing, but especially on August days in Murray, Kentucky, we would come in as third graders from recess, and everybody wanted that water fountain. I can still taste it. Every one of those third graders. We'd put our mouths all over that. I went to school in a time before there was germs. <laughs> we, didn't, we, didn't, we didn't have to worry about that because germs hadn't really been invented in, uh, in Kentucky. And man, I mean, I can still, I, I really, I can still almost taste how cold and good that water was. And so we can understand when David says, listen, just to himself, man, I can get water here in this cave in Adullam, but man, that Bethlehem water, that stuff just hits different. That stuff, I long for that on a physical level, we can understand that. But can we not also understand it on a spiritual level? Who of us haven't felt that? Who of us can't appreciate the, the longing behind the longing, the thirst underneath the thirst. We're all, in a sense, longing for home. And so he's sighing. He, he, I don't think he's really saying this to anybody. It's a sigh. He's speaking about his thirst. And also, if you know what comes next, this is important. If you know what comes next, you need to know this is not a dare. He's not looking around all these soldiers going, which one? I wish somebody here was man enough to get me a drink of water 15 miles away in Bethlehem. No, no, no. And yet, This unnamed trio part of the mighty men they do something so legendary it's been recorded for us in the pages of scripture they love their king and they know their king is so much more than a king to them he's a brother and they realize they know exactly what he's asking what he's saying is will i ever see the promises of god will i ever be able to drink from the well at bethlehem again will i ever defeat the philistines am i ever going to see peace are the promises of god ever going to come true in my life that's what he's thirsting for well, they overhear it. And we don't know what it took to hatch that plan. Hey, did you hear what, I, you hear what King said? I did. You thinking what I'm thinking? Probably not, man. You're crazy. <laughs> then the three mighty men, verse 16, broke through. This is not a sneak attack. The word broke means smash. <laughs> broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate be ashamed to go all that way and get the wrong water, but the one from the gate and carried and brought it to David. Oh man, this is one of those verses in Scripture. That's all you get. That's all you get. You're like, come on. We don't get this. Is something that this could be turned into a summer blockbuster movie. Can you imagine coming this fall to theaters? The Mighty Men. <laughs> Mighty men too. After a duelum, I'm thinking we got a franchise, but no. That's all you get. We do know that the Philistine camps were guarded by garrisons of 20 soldiers. Uh, you all will all remember that because you'll remember 1 Samuel 14 when Jonathan had to break through a garrison of uh, Philistine soldiers. Do you remember that one with just him and his armor bearer? He had to climb down the Mount Slippery and up Thorny or something like that. Thank you to the two of you who are nodding. I appreciate and respect the, what, what you're doing there for your preacher. He broke through, but he broke through implies they didn't, they didn't sneak through. This wasn't a ninja thing. This wasn't stealth. This wasn't an in and out op. No, they cut their way through a garrison of 20 soldiers, got to Bethlehem. It's 15 miles away. Broke through the enemy lines. Now remember, Bethlehem was up a hill, so they fought uphill, broke through the lines. And can you imagine? They're they're fighting. They're screaming. They're encouraging one another, these three. And the Philistines are wondering, what has happened? Where's the rest of the army? They're hollering out, which one was it? The one by the gate. Okay. Philistines are wondering, you know, two guys are fighting off the Philistines while a third one is filling up the water skin. The Philistines are wondering, what are they after? Is this an ambush? Are they after hostages or gold? No, they're getting water. Water? What? They bring it back and they present it to David. Now, what a gift to David. hmm? It says they brought it to David. And we'll see in just a minute, and you'll see already, I hope, It's not really about the water is it is it how many of you have had a moment not like this how many of you though have had a moment when you've been so touched someone did an act of love or kindness for you and it wasn't it wasn't the act itself it was everything that went behind it does anybody know what i'm talking about Uh, how many of you have been at a time of grief say for example at a funeral for a loved one and there's somebody, and they live so far away, and they took off work, and they did all, and there they were at that funeral. And they'll never know what that meant to you, but it's, just, it, it's not, the, it's not the, the thing itself, it's the love and the heart behind it. And your heart was touched that they get such devotion to you, or to the people you love. And that's how David felt. What what they're basically saying with this gift is not, here, king, we know you're thirsty. He's not thirsty. What they're saying is, hey, when we overheard your sigh, what we heard was a fellow who's doubting just a little bit. We heard a fellow who's slipping in his faith a little bit. We heard somebody who was wondering, am I going to make it? Am I going to pull through? And you're wondering, is God with us? Well... I'd say he's with us, King. Look at this. And if you want to know how the Philistines are doing, the ones that are still standing are demoralized. <laughs> that three Israelite soldiers were able to break through and get this water, King. And if three Israelite soldiers can do that, then it seems to me you, O oh King, have forgotten that the same God, when a little shepherd boy, slew a giant with a stone, can get us three safely through the Philistine lines at Bethlehem. He's done it then. He did it today. He'll do it again, king. Here's proof. Here's the water. What an encouragement. What a blessing. What a gift to their king. Well, now let's pause and do some application. Now's that part I told you about where the Bible is a guide for life. Did you know that these mighty men are a model for every servant of King Jesus Christ? Do you love Jesus? Wouldn't you long to give obedience to Christ, your king? I would call this section, Loves Obedience. And I can give you three things. Quickly, notice about the mighty men. First, they were close enough to hear the king's whispered words. I don't want you to miss that point. Before the mighty men could do great obedience to the king, they had to be close enough to the king to overhear his whispered words. To every servant of the king, are you remaining close enough to your king to hear every whispered word? Are you staying close to the word of God where you can hear the words that have dripped from the lips of God Almighty? Be close enough. How many of you know God doesn't usually shout? More often, it's a still, small voice. So you got to stay close enough to his word. They were close enough to hear the king's whispered words, they were loyal enough. To take his wish at their command. Close enough to hear the whispered words. Loyal enough to take his wish is their command. Uh, I want you to see it. It's a subtle thing. But the king did not command anybody to go get water. It was simply his wish. Now what that shows me is uh, these guys were loyal. Okay, they were obedient, sure. But it went beyond that to a kind of deep obedience of loyalty. Where it's not just, king, I'll check every box that you command but I long to please you. Do you see that difference? Uh, It's it's not just that they responded to the king's command, but to just his sigh. Now, what would that look like in your life, in obedience, to say, it's not just like I'm checking a bunch of boxes in my obedience to his command, but my Jesus, I love thee. I know thou art mine. For thee, all the follies of sin I resign not because you're commanding me and I'm trying to legalistically follow every box I just love you and I want to please you you see that there's a difference (laughs) Jackie and I are leading a marriage bible study on uh Wednesday nights and we tell everybody who's married for 20 years if by year five you haven't done this I'm just kidding (laughs) it's really encouraging uh so anyway, we've had a wonderful time a delightful time and i I thank the good Lord for the privilege to do that and uh uh for those couples that are in there that are long suffering with us and uh they um uh, uh we had a good laugh on Wednesday because the lesson was on communication and how um uh I think it was i wasn't listening and i think and i uh uh I don't remember the exact uh, discussion, but it was something like how a lot of the wives and the the men both were were coming from a different place. The the men were saying, I would be happy to do anything if you'll just clearly lay out what you want done. Well, I don't have to finish it. You already know what's wrong with that, right? And from a lot of the wives' perspective, their point was, But I shouldn't have to ask. Like, the best is if you just know. And and men are like, "So what you really want's a mind reader?" And they're like, "Yes." And it's like, so anyway, it's really uh, funny. But for our purposes here in this message, uh, I, I do think we all get the point as much as the men joked about, well, I'm not a mind reader, as much as the women were joking about, well, we shouldn't have to ask, there was a middle ground there where everybody agreed. When you're married uh, for a certain length of time, there is a deep and abiding love where you sort of can predict what this person would be blessed by. You sort of can anticipate what would really help them and serve them. And that's the obedience these guys had to their king. Christian, let me ask you, is that the obedience you have to your king? It's not just, okay, Lord, if you'll wake me up every morning like a general and say, do this, do this, do this, and you can have 20 minutes off to watch the game. No, that's not a relationship. It's a relationship of love. Uh, It's a difference. These guys were loyal enough to take his wish. That's good enough to be a command. Now, just to make this application clear, you know, your King Jesus doesn't need water, but he's given you the great commission to carry the living water to the world, hadn't he? Your King Jesus doesn't need food, he doesn't need shelter, and he doesn't need a visit when he's in jail. But here's this thing he did in Matthew 25. He said, I don't need any of that stuff, but here's the deal. When we sort all this out at the end, I'll look to the people who visited the poor who could offer nothing to the, to the hungry, to the needy, and those who were in jail, and I'll say, if you did it to the least of these my brothers, here's the deal. I'll pretend like that was done to me. I'm gonna basically take it as that in as much you did it, at least these my brothers, you did it unto me. And I'll, I'll, I'll take every bit of that service and I'll give you credit just as if you did it to me. So there's a, there's a very real sense in which it, you, you absolutely can give Jesus a cup of cold water today. You give it to the poor. You absolutely can bless Jesus. You share with the, the, the good news around the world. You, 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 you help someone who in no way can pay you back. Well, there you go. The third application, close enough to hear the king's whispered words, loyal enough to take his wish at their command, and brave enough to obey at any cost. Bravery. Uh, C.S. Lewis, you all know him now. It's a good friend to you too. It says, courage is not simply one of the virtues, but the form of every virtue at the testing point. I probably should have put that on the screen. I'll say it again. Courage is not simply one of the virtues. So there's love and there's you know, uh, selflessness and there's generosity and so, so forth and so on. So it's not, But it's not just one of the virtue. Courage is the form of every virtue at the testing point. So it's, it, I think what he's saying is there's a great virtue we all celebrate, let's say, the virtue we teach little children of sharing. Hmm? And sharing. And do you know what I've learned? Everybody is for Sharing. Everybody loves sharing. I've never met a person, I'm like, hey, are you for or against sharing? Everybody goes, for. Everybody loves sharing. Until what? Until they realize sharing actually means giving, and giving means it costs you. Well, now, I don't like that. Every kid I know is for sharing until I ask for some of their Halloween candy. Suddenly, that's not sharing. It's not sharing. You take it, you eat it, you digest it. I don't get it. That's not sharing. I thought sharing was like, we both sort of get it. You get, I eat a little, you eat a little. No, it's giving. It's painful. So what Lewis's point is, sharing is the virtue. But at the very tip, at the very tip of the spear of virtue, it's courage. Do you have the trust to say, okay, Lord, I can give this because I can trust you. I can share because you've been good to me. I will have the courage to enact whatever virtue you've called me to. I don't want to belabor the point, but they had courage. I, I guess I do want to belabor the point. It's not, will you obey when it's easy? It's, will you obey when it's fifty miles to Bethlehem, up the hill, through the garrison of Philistine soldiers? And they would. What about you? Will you follow your king at any cost? Well, let's get back to the story. There it is. There's the application. Now, back to the story. So the three mighty men have brought this incredible gift to David. Now, what do you think David does? He does something that at first makes no sense at all. Fought 15 miles, fought off. These guys are, no doubt, they've got, they've got they've, they're, they're bloody. They're, they're, they're beaten up. They're bruised. They Offer this water. Here, David, we uh, couldn't help but here. You wanted a water from the drink of that well at Bethlehem. Well, here's some water from that well at Bethlehem. Verse 16b. But he would not drink of it. He poured it out. I remember reading that as a boy going, I'd have killed him. (laughs) Right? Because that's what you think at first. Like, man, what a slap in the face. No, 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 no. Do you think he's rejecting their gift? No. Do you think he's rejecting the devotion? No. Would they have been offended by this? No. They would have been profoundly moved and deeply touched. Why? Read your Bibles I tricked you. It doesn't say he poured it out. Look, he poured it out to the Lord. That's a big difference. In other words, this is deeply profound. The men would not have been offended by this. They would have been touched. What David was doing was honoring the devotion of these men and saying, this kind of devotion is not for me or any human being. This kind of devotion belongs to the Lord. So he poured out a drink offering to the Lord. What he is saying is this, you risked your life for this, water obtained it. That kind of cost is far too precious for, to be used for my refreshment. I'm not going to use what you did for my trivial refreshment. No, this, this is for God. David explains all this in verse 17, clearly. And, and he said, far be it for me, O Lord. Now they bow their heads. At this point, they're praying. See, they're all praying together. Far be it for me. And this would have been incredibly profoundly moving to the men who did this. Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. What mattered to David was not the water itself, but the extraordinary sacrificial love and devotion of these brothers. That's why he calls the water the blood of the men. For David, he's saying, you could have been killed for this. You certainly bled for this. That kind of sacrificial cost to David, therefore, represents the blood. And the blood then belongs to the Lord. It was one of David's finest moments, by the way. Compare that. Kings like Saul and many evil kings who have followed, when those kind of kings get devotion that's devoted only to God, when it comes their way, how many kings have the uh, courage to do what David did, which is reflect it right back to God? And how many kings would just not only absorb that kind of devotion, how many kings and tyrants and dictators have demanded that kind of devotion from their subjects? But not David, not in this moment. He was saying Psalm 115 in a way, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory. I suppose there's an application here for anyone in leadership, in ministry, anyone who's a parent. You can apply it to your own line of work, I'm sure. Just notice how quickly and easily entitlement creeps in. I'm entitled to this. I'm the king after all. I belong in Jerusalem. I'm in a cave. No, David remembered everything I have is a gift. What he's saying is I'm not gonna absorb devotion that's due only to God. So when men and women are blessing me or serving me or anyone on your staff or those of you who lead or your children, mm, they're really, they're serving God and I'm being blessed in their service to God. And so that means in your heart of hearts, if, 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 if you receive some word of gratitude or someone gives you a kind word, you know, hey, that Sunday school lesson you worked hard to prepare, that really blessed me. Hey, I want you to know when you made that casserole and you brought it over, when, uh, when uh, we had had that uh, sickness, and uh, boy, that, that really helped me so much. What are they doing? They're offering you compliment. They're offering you gratitude. You, you don't have to, when it says pour it out to the Lord, it doesn't mean you rebuke them. You don't have to say, well, that wasn't me. That was God. Well, great. Now, they know it was God, but you're who they're thanking. So, so what you can do is you can say, thank you. But then, in your private moments, in your prayer, the key is to say to God something like, I only serve, God, I'm grateful they thanked me, but I only serve by your grace. So let this encourage me, but not ruin me. Let it all flow back to you, God. And offer your life back as a drink offering unto the Lord. Well, there you have it. That's it, I told you, four verses. The story ends. These things the three mighty men did. Okay, everybody clear? Uh, This is how you're supposed to live and you should have been doing this for years. And if you didn't start on this when you were 20, (sighs) it's gonna be tough now. And uh, God is always doing these things for you, so why can't you give spontaneous love and devotion back to your king and always be close enough to hear the king's words and always be brave enough and at any cost, Always give obedience and never fail to give obedience to God. Any questions? <laughs> what's the problem with that? If we stop there, don't you see what's happened? If we look at the Bible just as a moral tale, here are some examples to follow. Well, yeah, that's not only great examples. They're, they're literally mighty men. But they're, In fact, there may be some who are so privy, they would say nothing's wrong with that kind of sermon. Let's go. We've been here long enough. We got what we're supposed to do, and let's go do it. But surely some self-reflection would allow even that person to say, "But what if I'm? What if I'm going through a season where I don't feel close enough to God to hear His whispered words? What if I? What if I don't feel loyal enough? Honestly, I feel prone to wander, Lord. I feel it, prone to leave the God I love, and and brave, huh?" I don't even want to talk to people about my faith. I'm too scared to share the plan of salvation, much less bust through an enemy line of Philistine soldiers. Is there any hope for me? I told you, if you simply read the Bible as a bunch of stories you're supposed to follow, you'll be crushed. But if you remember that every one of these stories, even stories about quote-unquote lowercase h heroes, are all, in fact, pointing to the ultimate hero, the one Hebrews 12 calls the author and perfecter of our faith, Jesus Christ. He's the hero. He's the mighty man. This story, like every story, points us to Jesus. It's a story about Jesus. I give credit to Tim Keller for helping me uh, see this in this particular passage. When David saw the mighty man had broken through, he had assurance that God was with him. He had absolute assurance because they risked their lives, watch this, through the sacrifice of those men, David could have assurance that God was still with him. The Bible tells us there is somebody who has overheard your sigh for home. The Bible says, like those mighty men, there's somebody who's overheard your heart's cry for thirst. When you cried out, I thirst, I need home, I need rest, I need security, I'm, I'm beaten up on all sides. And sometimes you're just saying it to the dark, or you're saying it to yourself, or you feel so lonely. Oh, the Bible, this whole thing's pointing. There is one who overheard your sigh. And you know what that means. Overheard your heart. Some of you have forgotten there's a reason you sigh. You know you're not built for what you have here there's a restlessness in our hearts there is a thirst for water some of us we we, we never tasted before but we know instinctively there's more we're experiencing that thirst and there is somebody who spontaneously and joyfully charged toward the enemy for you now watch here's the difference the mighty men of David broke through the lines at risk Of their life. But Jesus didn't just break through the enemy lines at the risk of his life, he broke through the enemy lines at the cost of his life. And so his blood poured out gives us far more assurance that God is with us than even David had. And the way David looked at those men is the way every Christian heart this morning should consider Jesus we should be awestruck, we should be astounded, we should be joyful, and we should be confident, and we should know, if that's true, if, if the Son of God loved me, gave himself for me, and rose again on, from the grave on the third day, how much assurance does that give me that all the promises of scripture are gonna come true in my life? Chuck's gonna come and lead us in a time of response. You know, David, if you think about it, had just that temporary sacrifice. Three men at the risk of their lives, loved him, proved God was with him. Oh, but the Son of God, he gave us a once-for-all sacrifice. You know, I don't know if it strikes you, but he heard our cry. He heard our thirst. And Isaiah, the prophet, says about Jesus that he was... Pierced for our iniquities. He was crushed for our transgressions. And the chastisement that brought us peace was laid upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. What that tells me is that every sin that deserves the wrath of God, and, and for everyone who feels that guilt and they feel far from God, hear the good news, the gospel, that there is one who's paid that price in your place and for your salvation every sin on him was laid. And that longing for home, Jesus never had to feel that. Jesus never had to feel that. He was always at home with his father. But do you know, at Christmas, he, we celebrate. He, he, he left that heavenly home and became a little baby, born in a manger, and lived a perfect life. But on the cross, he died a sinner's death. And for every sinner who thirsts for home, doesn't it strike you that one of the last words he cried out from the cross was, I am thirst for us and our salvation he went knowing I mean those mighty men thought they could probably get out of there somehow Jesus knew he was going up that hill to die but that's what it would take to give living water to his people Well, the whole point then is you don't just leave a sermon and you go, well, that's the application point. Honestly, I should have been doing this for years. I guess I'll try again this week. We'll we'll give it another go. Yes, the Bible gives you guidance for life, so do all that stuff. But the The sweetness of coming to worship God every week, the the real joy, the stuff that will actually make you mighty in the long run, is hearing week after week, look at he is the mighty man. Look at what he has done for you. So that you say, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, love so amazing, so divine, it demands everything I have. See, I will pour out my life. Because this kind of devotion, what, what else can I do? It belongs only to God. That's the hope. That's the good news. That's the gospel. And ultimately, that's what will make you mighty. Let's pray. God, grant to us a fresh appreciation for what you did for us. You overheard our sigh. You charged through enemy lines and chased that sin all the way down to Calvary's cross. Caught it on that tree. And on the third day, You rose from the dead. If there's anybody here who feels far from you, doesn't know you, let them know today, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that you are their champion. You are the hero. And God, for those of us who have been saved by you and redeemed, grant to us that we might give service, give love, give devotion, obedience to you in the way these brave mighty men gave to their king, David. I do thank you for those examples we have. But I thank you most of all that all those hero stories point straight to you, Jesus, the ultimate hero. Let us exist this week on the sweetness of that good news. In Jesus' name, amen.